You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Okay, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, then the verses will come up on the screens around the room, but uh, I always encourage you to look along with me in your Bibles so you know I'm not making it up as I go along. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to read verses 45 to 50. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And at once, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So at midday on the first Good Friday, the whole area goes dark, as dark as night, which would have been a really scary moment. People would have wondered what on earth is going on here. And then at about three o'clock, so about three hours of darkness ensue, and then Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are quite chilling words. In fact, they're some of the most mysterious words in the whole of the scriptures. It's quite hard for us to get our head around what on earth Jesus is saying. And Matthew and Mark, they record it in Aramaic, which was an ancient language that not everyone spoke because some were thinking that Jesus was calling out to Elijah when actually he was calling out to God. They wanted people to get the drama. These words would have been very dramatic. These are profound words. And this morning, we're just going to unpack what on earth was going on at that moment. What was going on that would cause Jesus to cry out, why have you forsaken me? What's going on here? What's going on in the Trinity? As Christians, which many of us here are, we believe that God is three and yet one. He's three persons and yet one God. What was going on at that moment? Was Jesus uh, abandoned and no longer part of the Godhead? What happened? Were they separated, he and his father? Why was he asking why? Didn't he know why? Wasn't he aware that he was going to have to die? Did he lose sight of what God was doing? So we're going to unpack these things this morning. I expect that many of us have asked questions of God in our lives. Whether you are a Christian this morning, whether you're agnostic, whether you're seeking for some sort of truth in life, I expect that many of us have asked the question, why, of God. Probably the most recent one for me, uh, as I look back now, is quite trivial and I can kind of laugh a little bit, but it was at Christmas time and uh, had been very busy and needed a break and uh, went to my parents to stay for a few days and just really needed to rest up. And my, one of my children uh, just did not want to sleep and screamed all night, would not settle in, a, in an unfamiliar environment. And I found myself at sort of three or four in the morning, Sarah, my witness, uh, on the floor in our kitchen going, why God, why? Why am I not sleeping? I need a rest. And at the time it wasn't at all funny, but I can look back and laugh now. I expect many of us have asked more serious questions of God. Why Uh, Why are those things happening to that person? They are a good person. Why are they going through that suffering? Or why am I not 
seeing breakthrough in the area of employment? Or why is that person having good things happening to them? Because they're awful. They do awful things. Why is that happening, Lord? We ask questions. Why? And the good thing is that the Bible doesn't shy away from these questions. It doesn't pretend that we have perfect lives. It doesn't pretend that everything goes well for us. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is very clear. It doesn't airbrush these problems. We see in the Psalms, and actually Jesus is uh, starting off Psalm 22, uh, which, is, which starts with those words, Why have you forsaken me? And the Psalms, these songs that we find in the Old Testament, most of them written by uh, King David, who was the guy who killed Goliath. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you might be familiar with David and Goliath. Uh, David will often say, How long, O Lord, will you leave me like this? Why is this going on? Why do the wicked prosper? And really asking honest quite raw, emotional questions of God. And it's comforting to know that Jesus, our Savior, also had those questions of God. Isn't it comforting to know that we're not alone in this, that actually God knows what it's like for us because in Christ, he suffered far worse than we do, not in trivial ways like missing out on a night's sleep from time to time. He suffered the most brutal execution and he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what was going on here? And what are the implications for us? In order to understand the implications for us, we need to understand a little bit about the Trinity. We're actually going to do a series on the Trinity uh, later on this year at the end of May, um, probably in three parts. And uh, we're going to be exploring what what God is like, who who He is. And we need to understand, friends, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have coexisted eternally and they have loved each other eternally. We might ask the question, what was God doing before the foundation of the world? Well, he was loving his son. He was loving his son. Something that um, Jehovah's Witnesses get wrong is that they uh, believe that Jesus was a created being. And therefore, God cannot have always been loving because there was if Jesus was a created being there was a time when God had no one to love and therefore he cannot eternally be love if there was once a time when he had no one to love God has always been love before he was a creator before he was a ruler before anything else he has been and eternally been a father he's always been full of love for his son And so on the cross here, we see something horrific going on when Jesus, who has for eternity known the affection of his father, known the love of his father, known the delight of his father, is now crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the one time in the Gospels when Jesus doesn't call God Father. This is quite telling, isn't it? This is the one moment when he says, my God, my God. All the other times he said, Father, and he's tried to teach his disciples, when you talk to God, call him Father. That's how we get to come before him. That's how he's taught all his uh, ministry. And on this occasion, he's saying, my God, my God. Jesus loves the Father. He's always going on about it. If you read John's gospel, he's always going on about how much he loves God. It says in uh, John 14, verse 31, Jesus says, The world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what he says. In John chapter 4, he says that to do his Father's pleasure is like food to him. He loves his Father. So we've got this eternally loving relationship. And then suddenly it's come to this on the cross. My God Why have you forsaken me? Well, we've had the answer to why 
A few hours earlier, Jesus is face down in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's saying, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way that we can do this? Is there any other way that we can rescue the world without me having to go through this pain and suffering? And he doesn't receive an answer. He receives silence. There's no other way. There's no other way for the salvation of man. Jesus had to drink the cup. He had to go to the cross. So we've got the why. We understand why he was going through it. It was the only way. Jesus, he had known from the beginning that this was his destiny. He spoke often to his disciples about the time that he was going to be lifted up. And that meant lifted up on a cross. He would talk to them about his death that was coming. But now he's tasting it in all its bitterness. And the reality is far, far worse than he had imagined it. So he's crying out why in awe of this dreadful situation. What does it mean that he was forsaken? What, what can that mean? What it can't mean is this. It cannot mean that the eternal communion between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was somehow broken. It cannot mean that because God cannot cease to be God. He's a triune God. He's always three in one. So there, there wasn't a kind of cutting off there where Jesus suddenly ceased to be God. Neither could it mean that the Father ceased to love the Son. He's always loved his Son. So in what way was Jesus forsaken? Because he was, he was truly forsaken. He didn't just feel forsaken. He was truly forsaken. We're going to look at three ways in which uh, he was forsaken. And then we're just going to land it by looking at how do we apply this into our lives? How, do we, how does this change us? How does this actually change our hearts and our minds? How does it cause us to live differently? That's where we're going to land it this morning. So, first way in which Jesus was forsaken was this. God the Father allowed Jesus to suffer social abandonment. We see that the soldiers, they scoffed at Jesus. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And they knelt, they knelt before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and they took the reed and they stuck it, struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The soldiers scoffed at him. The crowds we see in verse 39, they mocked him. They derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. The religious leaders, verse 41, they mocked him as well. So the chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. The religious leaders they mocked him. The thieves next to him, verse 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. His own friends, they scattered, they fled. We see that only a few women are left loyal to Jesus at the very end. And John, uh, one of his closest friends, they were the only ones that had stuck with him. The rest had run away in fear that they would get arrested or they would also be crucified. He had been completely abandoned. The father allowed Jesus to suffer social abandonment. He was outcast from every strata of society. We've got thieves, we've got religious leaders, we've got soldiers, we've got the crowds. Everyone rejected him. He was completely rejected by every strata of society. He became an outcast. He became an outcast so that you and I, if we've placed our faith in him, so that we could be welcomed into the community of God, that we could be in God's family, that we could be part of his family, that we could be, as we heard earlier, sons and daughters of God. That is good news, isn't it? Isn't that good news that Jesus was outcast so that we could be brought in? 
Jesus is outcast so that we could know that we are forever loved, forever secure. So God the Father allowed Jesus to experience social abandonment. God the Father allowed Jesus to suffer emotional desertion. As I said earlier, Jesus begins to cry out from Psalm 22. I was uh, told just yesterday that uh, in, in those times they wouldn't um, say, right, turn to your Bibles to Psalm number 33. That wasn't kind of the deal there. They knew that the Psalms by the way they started. So they would have recognized that Jesus was beginning to quote from Psalm 22, which is a psalm uh, of David, but it ultimately is a messianic psalm which looks forward to actually being fulfilled in its completeness by Jesus or by the Messiah that they were expecting. And so that Jesus starts uh, crying out from Psalm 22, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. In this psalm, he he doesn't hear a reply from the Holy One of Israel. He doesn't hear God uh, coming to his rescue. He is totally deserted. It's, it's more than just loneliness. This forsakenness is more than just loneliness. It's more than just being uh, on his own. It's a sense, almost a sense of betrayal. This is what he feels. Like a, a bridegroom who's waiting for his bride in the, in the church and she doesn't show up. That's kind of the feeling there. As Jesus is crying out to God and he doesn't come to his aid. He doesn't come to his rescue There's an expectation, a longing, a hope. It doesn't come to pass. Jesus was completely marooned. He was abandoned. We might experience these things in some degree, but Jesus, having known the eternal delight of the Father, suddenly he's crying out to his his God and nothing is coming to save him. He is not going to be rescued from that cross. He will die. And sometimes for us, when we cry out why, when we cry out how long, O Lord, when we have those kind of prayers, and that's okay. it's okay to pray that way, by the way. Jesus gives us a model there. It's okay to do that. When we pray those things, sometimes we think, well, I'm not perfect. Sometimes we'll come to the recollection that we're not perfect, and we'll think, well, okay, maybe I understand why God hasn't answered that prayer. Um, but Jesus, he was completely sinless. No one deserved uh, to be abandoned less than Jesus. He was completely sinless. Sinless sounds quite boring, doesn't it? When you say, Jesus, he was sinless, it sounds very bland. Well, it describes what Jesus wasn't like. He wasn't selfish. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't proud. He wasn't heartless. But it sounds like he was really boring to say that he was sinless. And I've read this amazing quote in this book called Christ Our Life by a guy called Michael Reeves. You need to get hold of this book. If you uh, are not going to get Easter eggs next week, and some of us could maybe do without some Easter eggs, let's get get this book, Christ Our Life. Get it on Amazon or somewhere else. And uh, it's a brilliant book, just just unpacking who Jesus is. And Michael Reeves says this, What was Jesus like? He was anything but boring and anemic. Here was a man with towering charisma, running over with life. Health and healing, loaves and fishes, all abounded in his presence. So compelling did people find him that crowds thronged around him. Men, women, children, sick and mad, rich and poor. They found him so magnetic that some wanted just to touch his clothes. Kinder than summer, he befriended the rejects and gave hope to the hopeless. 
The dirty and despised found that they mattered to him. His closest friends found that as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was like being with a bridegroom at a wedding. Yes, he was a man who felt a world of pain and yet who abounded with joy. Generous and genial, firm and resolute, he was always surprising. Loving but not soppy, his insight unsettled people and his kindness won them. Indeed, he was a man of extraordinary and extraordinarily appealing contrasts. You simply couldn't make him up, for you'd make him only one or the other. He was red-blooded and human but not rough, pure but never dull, serious with sunbeams of wit, sharper than cut glass. He out-argued all comers but never for the sake of the win. He knew no failings in himself but was transparently humble. He made the grandest of claims for himself, but without a whiff of pomposity. He ransacked the temple, spoke of hellfire. He called Herod a fox. He called the Pharisees pimped up corpses. And yet never do you doubt his love as you read of his life. With a huge heart, he hated evil and felt for the needy. He loved God and he loved people. You look at him and you have to say, here is a man truly alive unwithered in any way, far more vital and vigorous, far more full and complete, far more human than any other. This is Jesus. This is what he was like. When we say he was sinless, that doesn't mean he was boring. He was far more alive than any of us. He was far more alive than any human being that's ever walked on this planet. This is the one who did did not deserve to know the forsakenness of God on the cross. He did not deserve to know it. The feeling of abandonment after a life of perfect obedience and trust left the Son of God overwhelmed with emotion. My God, how could you leave me alone after doing all that you asked? The Savior feels his heart melting, his bones dislodged, his strength is dried up, his hands and feet were pierced, he was stripped naked, people were gawking at him. His clothes were divided. This is the very creator of the world, hanging powerless on the cross, looking to his father to be his strength, but the father stands far off, further away than those few women that had stuck with Jesus. The father stands far off. Not only was he abandoned by the men that he came to save, he was also emotionally deserted by the father in whom he trusted. Why? Because he had to become sin for our sake. He had to become sin for our sake. So the third reason, or the third way that Jesus was forsaken at the cross, the Father allowed the Son to suffer spiritual wrath. Jesus' mind at this point is limited; it's near the limit of its endurance. As we look back from the gallery of history, we know the outcome. We know that it ends on Easter Sunday. We know that he rises again victoriously. But at this point, overwhelmed with suffering, overwhelmed with pain, overwhelmed with the, the, the wrath of God that he was experiencing, I don't think Jesus knew. I don't think he knew the outcome at this point. I think God had kept this from him. He is suffering in his human nature the fury of hell. The fury of hell. He's standing under the full weight of God's anger towards sin. Nothing had ever come between him and his father before. Nothing had ever got in the way. But now the whole world, the sin of the whole world has come between them. He's caught in this dreadful curse of God's wrath. Now, 
sometimes we can be tempted to think that the wrath of God is some sort of character blip, some sort of uh, nasty side to God. No, it's the proof of the sincerity of God's love. The wrath of God, as you get this, it's the proof of the sincerity of his love, that he truly cares. His love isn't limp, it's not mild-mannered. He hates sin because he knows the effect that sin has in our lives and in our world, and he knows that he is far, 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 far better than anything else that this world offers that is sinful. And so in his love, he wants us to be free from sin so that we can enjoy him. He's righteously angry at his creation when we sin. He's righteously angry. It's actually proof of the sincerity of his love. If I... I love my wife, okay? Just to reassure you, I love my wife. If I wasn't angry, if someone tried to take her away from me and to seduce her and to... If I wasn't angry, it would be proof that I did not love her. And God is righteously angry at sin. He's righteously angry at sin. His wrath has to be poured out. And we have here the sinless one on the cross, crying out with a loud voice, why have you forsaken me? This is the man who least deserves the abandonment of God, being abandoned in our place. The Bible says that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We see in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Son of God bore our sins in his body on the tree. It says in Galatians that Jesus became accursed for us, for it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, he took our place. This is our place. Do you understand that? You, you are far more sinful than you know. I am far more sinful than I know. And yet we're far more loved than we could know. Jesus Christ, he took our place on the cross. We deserve that place. That's the horror that is awaiting anyone who doesn't turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. We need to trust Jesus to save us from the wrath of God, the righteous anger at sin. That is an overflow of his love. Jesus, for those who place their trust in him, he stands in the way of God's wrath. He takes our place. This was the only way for God's righteous anger to be poured out without destroying each one of us. So we've got Jesus here standing where no one has stood before or since, enduring at one tiny point in history all that sin deserved. He, in that, those few hours, he endured all that sin deserved. And we read of this final cry. Matthew doesn't record it. We just see in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew doesn't record those words. We know that John does. John recorded them presumably because he was standing right there in front of him. John was one of the only disciples who stuck with Jesus right till the very end. John heard what Jesus cried. Jesus cried, it is finished. He cried, it is finished. The work was done. The work needed for our salvation was completed. It was accomplished. His work of bearing the penalty for our sins that we might go free. His work of being separated for a time from God so that we wouldn't have to experience eternal separation from God. It was done. It was dusted. He let out this cry And he gave up his spirit. And we see here that the curtain in the temple at that moment was torn in two. This was a really thick curtain. This wasn't kind of just a thin piece of material. 
It was woven with loads and loads of different fabrics. It was really, really thick. It was 60 feet high, it was 30 feet wide, and it was the separation between the holy place and the most holy place in the temple, where the high priest could only go once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. This curtain, as Jesus cried out, it is finished. This curtain tore in two, which says that now we have access to God. We can come before God with confidence because it is finished. That we can come and run to God. As we've heard this morning, it's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done for us. There's no curtain there now. And we can come into the holy place of God's presence because of what Jesus has done for us. Having dealt with our sin, having provided for us a way into the holy place. This has got to affect our lives, friends. This has got to daily affect our lives. The gospel isn't the ABC of salvation, it's the A to Z of salvation. That actually the way in which we change is by applying this good news into our lives. That Jesus died in our place, that he rose again victorious. We apply this into every area of our lives, into our marriages, into our thought life, into our workplaces, into our friendships, into every area of our life where we're struggling with sin. We apply this good news that Jesus Christ, he died in our place, that he rose victorious. We can be assured, maybe you're suffering with anxiety and worry. You can be assured now, because Jesus was forsaken, that you will never be forsaken by God. He has promised in his word, never will I leave you or forsake you. This has to affect the way we live our lives. This has to change everything. Everything changes when we realize what Jesus has done for us. And we have a father now who has adopted us, that he loves us completely, because for a time Jesus was cast out so that we could be drawn in. Jesus was rejected on account of our sin so that we could be adopted into God's family. We never need to doubt God's love for us now. We need to let this really sink into our lives. I think for some of us here, we, don't, we think, well, I believed that 15, 20 years ago. I be- I, there was a moment where I believed the gospel for the first moment and, and really kind of, that's it now. No, this needs to be applied in our life every day. This is the way we change. This is the way that we are loosened from the cords of sin and the things that we're tempted by when we believe what God has done for us, when we apply it afresh to ourselves. We never need to doubt God's love. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from the 1800s, I'm going to read this quote in a minute. This hit me hard. About three and a half years ago, one of our children was very sick. She was in hospital um, week after week, just doing loads of tests on her, cameras down her, her throat and all this kind of stuff. And I read this quote and it hit me like a like a freight train Spurgeon says this as for his failing you never dream of it hate the thought the God who has been sufficient until now should be trusted to the end hate the thought when you look at Jesus on the cross forsaken in your place you can never doubt God's love for you and nor can you say I've been forsaken by God no matter what we're going through we've not been forsaken by God and when we believe that when we accept that when we know that God hasn't forsaken me, he's with me, then he must be doing something through this. He's not left me. He's not left me in my suffering. So he's got to be doing something. We don't have to fear that he's rejected us or abandoned us. The death we celebrate this Friday, it was the most important death ever died. Jesus didn't die as a martyr to a righteous cause. He didn't simply die as an innocent man who was wrongly trialed. Jesus died as a substitute, as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. The heavenly, righteous Father had to judge him fully according to that sin. 
So Christ didn't, in any sense or degree, cease to exist as God or uh, as a member of the Trinity. But Jesus did, for a while, cease to know the intimacy of fellowship with his heavenly Father. Just just as a disobedient child might, for a while, have to uh, forsake an intimate, uh, normal, loving relationship with his human father when he's done something really wrong. We now know that intimacy with God. That never changes for us. We, we, we may uh, choose not to walk in intimacy with him. We may try and uh, block out the truth. And when we've done something wrong, we think, well, we can't come near to God. But actually, nothing changes now. We can, we can come and know God intimately as our father. And we have our whys. We can ask God. We can lament suffering and pain. That's okay. It's a biblical thing to do, to lament your pain. And I think it's something that uh, uh, some of us who are British here, we don't, lament, we don't do lament very well. We don't kind of uh, grieve very well. We don't weep over situations very well. That's okay to do that. We can bring our wise to God, but we can never doubt his love for us. He's poured out his love for us. He's given his only son for us. We don't doubt his love. This has got to transform our experience of God. This has to transform our lives. You know, no one is more influential in your life than you are. No one speaks to you more than you do. In fact, right now as I'm speaking, there's probably an internal conversation going on. When you woke up this morning, an internal conversation began. When you go to bed tonight, it will finish for a little while. But no one is more influential in your life than you are. We have to be speaking this truth to ourselves. Are Are we... speaking to ourselves or are we allowing ourselves to speak to us we need to be speaking to ourselves that sounds like a bit of a a weird thing to say are we speaking to ourselves or are we allowing ourselves to speak to us we actually need to speak the truth to ourselves when we're going through our day and maybe you're going through suffering right now where you think i feel completely abandoned by god you need to speak the truth to yourself to say no i know because jesus was forsaken that i will never be forsaken that actually, whatever I'm going through right now, God has to be doing something. And his word says that he's working all things together for my good. And so you need to speak this to yourself. You need to actually be deliberate with the things that you're allowing yourself to be thinking about. Rarely do we consider the influence of this internal conversation going on. In Psalm 42, David says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are, you in ter- why are you in turmoil within me? He's trying to like get to the grips with the fact that he's feeling pretty depressed. Hope in God. He starts speaking to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Have you realized that? Have you got to grips with that? We need to remind ourselves that God has not forgotten us in our moment of suffering. It's often that we've forgotten God, actually. We must talk to ourselves. We must arrest those thoughts of despair and misery and say to ourselves, trust in God. Hope in God, my soul. Trust in his character. Trust in his track record. Look look back. How often do we forget, right? (laughs) Look back, see his track record throughout this time until now how he's dealt with me faithfully how he's looked after me how he's come through for me trust his promises in his word my soul why are you so downcast trust in God the savior's soul was uniquely troubled and tormented so that the soul of sinners like you and me would know freedom from fear from freedom from the fear of eternal torment of our souls He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. 
he was forsaken so that we might be never forsaken. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, we can say with the psalmist, now looking at the cross and the resurrection, we can say, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. Because we know that he's the God of resurrection, don't we? That even when things seemed absolutely dire, his disciples wheeling him into this tomb, wrapping him up, the women anointing his body, and it must have been pretty hopeless. And then they see on the third day him rising in newness of life, in glory. I don't think their lives were filled with much turmoil after that. Even though they experienced suffering and were persecuted and were chased out of cities for sharing the good news of Jesus, I don't think that they had much internal turmoil because they knew that God was the God of resurrection. They knew it. They lived in the daily reality of the resurrection. And so for them, it wasn't a case of, oh man, this is a really awful situation. I'm just going to dwell on the awfulness of this situation. No, I believe God is a God of resurrection. So we hope in God. My soul, hope in God. So maybe this morning you are, you're ready to give your life to Jesus and to say, I trust in you. I trust that as you hung there on the cross, you were taking the burden of my sin upon yourself, that you were bearing the wrath of God, that I could be welcomed in, that I could be forgiven. If you are in that place this morning where you want to give your life to Jesus, then in a moment, I'd love for you to head over to the prayer area where there will be people ready to pray with you. But it might be that you are going through all kinds of difficulty and you're thinking to yourself, where is God in all of this? And maybe you want someone just to stand with you and say, believe the truth, believe the truth. And just to pray that into you and to help you as you set about in these weeks to come, applying the gospel into every area of your life, applying this good news and the implications of it. Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, to live the perfect life, that he was fully obedient to you, and that he, on the cross, was forsaken for a time, that he bore our sin and our shame, that he has fully removed our shame. I thank you for each one of us here who know you, that our shame has been removed. I pray that you would just just hammer that home in hearts right now our shame has been removed as far as the east is from the west that's how far you've removed our transgressions from us and we thank you Father for that truth this morning thank you that we can come before you without shame we can come we can come running because the curtain is torn in two we're not going to bang into a curtain we're going to come to our Father who's in heaven who loves us we come to you Father through your son Jesus and we say thank you Father for the sacrifice you made it it wasn't something that was easy for you you gave up uh, your only son to the cross you saw him in agony and you knew that it was necessary for our forgiveness you knew Lord there was no other way we thank you Father for your great love for us I pray Lord that each one of us right now you'd seal something in hearts Lord that we would never doubt your love that we would never doubt your presence with us that whatever we're going through, whatever circumstance of life, that we would never doubt your love. Help us, Lord. Help us to keep the cross in our minds as we, as we go through trials. Help us to keep the cross at the forefront of our minds, that we would trust you, that you know what we're going through, that you know how we feel and that you are with us and that you're working things in our lives because you're a God, you're a good God, you're a Father that we, we can know we can trust.
Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.